This is Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks radio special. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, here to share with you some inspiring and informational highlights from a recent season of our Peace Talks radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Whether it's the search for inner peace or how to make peace with each other in our homes, neighborhoods, schools, workplaces, or how to make peace within our country or between nations, we consider all these scenarios and more on Peace Talks Radio. We invite you to hear more at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear hundreds of complete programs dating back to 2002. And today we'll sample shows produced in our 2021 season, which started with a somber task of honoring one of our former producers, Hannah Colton, who had taken her own life in November of 2020. Her family had wanted Hannah's death to lead to a conversation about depression and suicide, so we devoted our January program in 2021 to the topic. Correspondent Megan Camrick talked with psychologist Dr. Ursula Whiteside about her efforts to stop suicide. Many of us who are left behind after a friend or family member goes through with suicide are plagued by guilt and a lot of questions. What are warning signs that someone may be considering suicide? Well, I want to say to you and I want to say to other people who've lost someone to suicide that sometimes there's nothing obvious going on and it's almost impossible to see. You know, you can't be inside someone's head and that guilt and wishing you could know then what you know now doesn't tend to serve us well. You know, that's on people like myself and the public health system and the the medical system to better train family members, friends, people who are struggling to support each other, to reach out. The vast majority of signs of suicide also just mean that the person's in a really bad spot, unhappy, probably experiencing some depression, anxiety. But extended periods of difficulty sleeping is something to watch out for. Extended periods of withdrawal and also irritability or pushing people away. Definitely talking about suicide is something that would be, a you know, something very important to follow up on, to ask that person what they mean, to have them explain what's going on with them in their life, you know, with real curiosity before trying to convince them of anything, you know, whether or not to do that. Those are some of the, you know, the most important ones. And there's a great list on American Foundation for Suicide Prevention.org, AFSP.org, where you can find more information. It can be really frightening if someone confides in us that they're in crisis. What can Mm -hmm. we do if we suspect our friend or loved one is considering suicide? I know we tend to get really anxious when someone's talking to us about it, but I think we should also be holding on to the fact that, like, this is a really good thing. My job right now is to be present with them and see if I can understand a little bit better, see if there's something I can do to help them get through this. This kind of goes to a potential way to address some of this that you have explored, caring messages. Yeah, caring context. This was an intervention that that was done many, many, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago, with people who were just leaving a psychiatric hospital after a suicide-related visit. Half of them got follow-up over mail. They got a letter in the mail these letters were done over time, not just once. And they essentially just expressed care that the letter writer was holding space for that person and that 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 person mattered. The way I use and many others use this now is with text messaging. 
in the original study, the people who received these carrying messages, you know, there were half as many suicides as there were in those that didn't get the carrying messages. So Wow. How can we use that technique in our own lives? I think one thing that you can do is take, you know, 60 seconds and think about who in your life has sort of like faded out a little bit. Who haven't you heard from that you used to hear from or who hasn't been on social media that used to be on? Who lost a job? Um, who's going through a divorce? Men, especially, they're more likely to die by suicide and often in some ways have less connections. Who would those three people be? And then start sending them regular messages like, you know, hey, the game's on on Saturday. I'm going to be watching it. You want to watch it virtually with me? You know, I know this is out of the blue, but I, I miss you. I'm thinking of you. There's much more with Dr. Ursula Whiteside at our website, peacetalksradio.com, as well as links to resources and her site, nowmattersnow.org. Look for our January 2021 episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. And remember, if you are in crisis and need someone to talk to, you can text 741-741 to reach a counselor at the crisis text line. You can also call the suicide hotline at 800-273-8255. 800-273-8255. When it's time to pick a movie or documentary to watch to unwind or make you feel a little bit better or a little smarter, it's kind of hard to find one that will do all those things amid all of today's streaming choices. We found a doc that filled our hearts with hope without it being too sugary sweet. Just real stories of real people showing kindness. The film is called The Antidote. And among the stories featured in the film is a program offering health service to the homeless in Boston, a resettlement support services project helping refugees from the Democratic Republic of the Congo adjust to a very different life in Anchorage, Alaska. A community college in Amarillo, Texas, really going the extra mile to remove the emotional, logistical, and financial barriers that students face there as they try to improve themselves to contribute more substantially to their families and to their community. Also at Decatur, Georgia Baptist Church, going off the more common script and opening up its doors to embrace and include the LGBTQ plus community and in an intentionally intergenerational living community in Portland, Oregon, matching young people in foster care with elderly residents who offer love and compassionate guidance. All these stories are on display in the film The Antidote. We're going to start by talking with the co-directors of this documentary, The Antidote. On a Zoom-like connection with me from separate locales are John Hoffman and Kahani Cooperman. Well, I'll, I'll start... In 2017 and 2018, I was really disturbed by the growing sense of hate and division in the country. And I had a prior uh, relationship with a very large nonprofit health system that had funded some public health media work that I had done. And I just made an offhand remark. I said, would you ever be interested in doing a documentary about kindness? And that took off. And uh, it wasn't long before they committed. And people I respect uh, tremendously said, you have to talk to Kahani Cooperman. Yeah. Why did they have to talk to you, Kahani? (laughs) Well, I think, you know, I had previously made a short documentary that was nominated for a 2017 
Oscar. And it specifically uh, focused on how a, a small act of kindness has an incredible ripple effect. I just thought, wow, what an interesting time in history to really, really explore this idea of kindness and this aspect of being a human. What does it mean? So describe briefly the process of settling on where you were going to take your cameras and which stories that you wound up telling. Well, at a certain point, we said, let's do an exercise. And we asked ourselves with the small team that we had created by that time, when the film is done uh, and we look back on our accomplishment, are there questions that we could say now that we will have wanted to have answered? What might those questions be? And that turned into a fascinating conversation that resulted in six very simple questions, which are, how do we raise our children? How do we teach our children? How do we take care of the sick and the dying? How do we live and work together? How do we welcome the stranger? And how do we lead? We felt that those questions kind of sum it up. And let's start looking for programs that really are, are addressing those questions with a, a sort of a philosophical approach that leads with kindness and decency. We realized that um, it wasn't just enough to ask those initial six questions, that we need to put them in the context of what we ended up calling the fundamental unkindnesses that we identified as just being part of everyday society here for so many Americans. So those fundamental unkindnesses are, you know, lack of a safe place to sleep, lack of access to health care, lack of an ability to earn a living wage, and the injustices of racism is, you know, fundamentally unkind. Sexism and homophobia are fundamentally unkind. And we took those unkindnesses and we sort of put them side by side with our questions. And together, those all became our North Stars, the, our, our way, our lens that we looked through to really start finding powerful stories that we could show and not tell what people were doing in light of all of these, and also the right stories that could work together. Kahani Cooperman and John Hoffman, co-directors of the documentary The Antidote, online viewing available through the film's website, theantidotemovie.com. Also at our website, peacetalksradio.com, you can hear interviews with subjects from two of the film's nine storylines. Look for the February 2021 episode at peacetalksradio.com. It's Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special today, highlighting conversations from just one season in our long-running series. In the March 2021 episode, correspondent Sarah Holtz helped explore the power of storytelling to help heal and strengthen communities. In one example, Sarah interviewed Tonika Lewis-Johnson, who in 2017 began taking pictures of residents whose street addresses read exactly the same, same street name, same number, except one was on the north side of Chicago, the more affluent side, and one was on the south side, the less well-off side. Tonika was trying to portray the city's segregation and uneven wealth distribution, but the photos sparked dialogue between the residents of the two nearly identical addresses and it became a peacemaking initiative called the Folded Map Project that confronted systemic inequalities just by having these pairs visit each other in each other's homes. 
Here's Tonika Lewis Johnson. When you listen to someone who you're visiting, you know, going to their house to talk to, you are naturally kind of disarmed and it allows for you to become empathetic in a way that you wouldn't listening to a news report or reading some report about disparity and segregation, like being face-to-face with someone in their neighborhood, in their home, describing to you why they like their neighborhood, the issues with their neighborhood, or not even having those answers. Um, It just provides an opportunity for a different kind of understanding or awareness that really isn't a conflict. And so all of their conversations, you know, reflected that. There were questions that were obviously interesting and difficult for some to answer. Um, People made mistakes trying to verbalize their preference for certain things in their neighborhood. And in any other setting, it could have been offensive. But in order to even learn how to talk about this, you're going to make the ultimately infantile mistakes of saying things wrong. But everyone was open to being corrected. And so that's the space I think um, Folded Map offered for people who were really interested in having this discussion and amplifying the complexities of talking about segregation and disparity to people who have a different lived experience than your own. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's so important right now, um, as we are so isolated just by how we're spending our days, um, that you're providing this opportunity to engage folks um, on this very deep and personal level. Oh, thank you. Um, Yeah, I think it's a level that is required now because it's very clear that litigation, policy, laws, protests alone haven't gotten us to where we want it to be. And for me, the missing ingredient to make all of those other critical ways to to make change in a society, protests, laws, policy, would be more impactful if we included the personal aspect if we amplify the movements of solidarity across racial lines that have occurred throughout history, if we look at those as possibilities of how we can make change for the future and really understand that populations don't just have to live separately and vote their way out of you know, an inequitable city, state, or country. It means more when you connect with others and you become more empathetic, you become more aware, you become more knowledgeable, you become more understanding, and you figure out ways to disrupt these large systemic issues in your own personal life. And those things are important. Those things are what contribute to movements. Those things are what contribute to you meeting other people that you might not meet because of segregation, that you could actually have a 
wonderful friendship or connection and relationship to. And all of those things are necessary if we want to advocate for those who are most negatively impacted by our country's inequity. And there are people who are privileged that care, you know, and there are people who are most negatively impacted by segregation that have solutions, but just don't have the platform to amplify those solutions. And that's why connecting across racial and geographic and class divides are important because there are people in each of those divides that could work well together. And that's what we need for change. You can hear more from Tanika Lewis-Johnson, founder of the Folded Map Project in Chicago, either in the hour-long version of our program or in the complete conversation Sarah Holtz had with her at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for our March 2021 episode. You've tuned to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special. I'm Paul Ingalls, co-founder and series producer of Peace Talks Radio, with another compendium of highlights from just one of our many seasons of programs about peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. You can find all the complete programs from which today's excerpts were taken at our website, peacetalksradio.com. In this case, look for the 2021 season at peacetalksradio.com. Our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, put together a mini-series in that season called Healing a Country's Wounds, looking at various techniques that nations or neighborhoods have tried to heal huge trauma from extreme conflict to mitigating more modest but significant setbacks, or even just to respond to a sense of community malaise. Her first episode, though, looked at transitional justice initiatives on a larger scale, like international criminal courts, truth and reconciliation commissions, and reparations. She talked with Nakichi Taifa, a social justice attorney and member of the National African American Reparations Commission. I think many people are confused about reparations as I was, because I used to think reparations was only about money, but it's not. It's a lot more than money. So what else would reparations for African Americans in the U.S. include? Well, first of all, a lot of people think it's just about a check. <laughs> it is not. Now, that's not to say a check would not be uh, a legitimate form of a reparation settlement, but it's far, far, far more. And today, it really is crystal clear that a reparation settlement can be fashioned in as many ways as necessary to equitably address the countless manifestations of injuries sustained from chattel slavery and beyond. So some forms of redress could include land, it could include economic development or scholarships, or it could embrace community um, development. You could have repatriation resources. I mean, if some folk who want to go back to Africa, it can be truthful textbooks, okay? You know, it might be the erection of monuments and museums. Uh, it even could be, okay, I know this is in the news today, but pardons for uh, prisoners from the war on drugs and from the COINTELPRO um, era. You know, all of these, can, let me tell you, the harm was multifaceted. Thus, the remedy must be multifaceted as well. H.R. 40, also known as House Resolution 40, what is it and how would it build peace? 
Uh, yeah, well, H.R. 40 is the bill that was first established by Congressman John Conyers back in 1989 to establish a commission to study, and now it's been expanded to actually develop reparation proposals for uh, African Americans. It is modeled after the successful Japanese-American reparations bill uh, that passed in 1988, and it has been languishing in Congress for uh, over 30 years. We hope that that will come to fruition very soon. And that will go a long way towards uh, reconciliation and peace. Nakichi Taifa, a social justice attorney and member of the National African American Reparations Commission. Suzanne also spoke with a commissioner from the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission in the program. That commission led a truth seeking process from February 2013 to June 2015 to uncover the truth about child welfare malpractice with Maine's native people, with the aim of undoing old harms and taking responsibility to implement best child welfare practices with native people. My name is Sandy Whitehawk, and I am from the, uh, I am Sichangu Lakota from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. It's so difficult to share a painful story for people to do this in public. And it mm -hmm. seems like many truth and reconciliation commissions are set up that way where a person talks to the group in public, but are there other options where a person doesn't have to speak in public? Well, the fear of speaking in public, I don't know where that comes from because as Indian people, we've always been able, like our ancestors were well-spoken and not ashamed prior to colonization. Being afraid to say what happened to you is a result of colonization. Being afraid to speak your truth and not understanding and hearing that, knowing and being assured that speaking your truth is your power and that that, that releases shame, that is all a result of colonization. So I have witnessed hundreds of individuals share their lived experience publicly and they find release. They find they're finally their experience is validated. These things, these atrocities that happened in boarding school and in a, abusive adoptive homes and abusive foster homes happened in isolation. And we're probably given the message, if not directly, indirectly, you say nothing. And so to repeat and individuals that are that are sharing their lived experience don't share intimate details but they share the brutality that happened to them how it made them feel and how it impacted them today so one of the things that has not been addressed in our communities are as a result of boarding school and adoption is this disenfranchised grief, which is a grief that's not been publicly acknowledged or validated. And so when that happens, it begins to heal that grief. It's the start of taking back your power. This happened to me. The relatives hear it and they embrace that individual, they support that individual and the healing begins. Sandy Whitehawk, Commissioner for the Maine Wabanaki State Child Welfare Truth and Reconciliation Commission. 
So much more important conversation that Suzanne Kreider had with her guests is in the April 2021 episode of Peace Talks Radio. Hear much more, read about it, and follow links to other resources all at peacetalksradio.com. You probably won't be surprised to hear that Americans have been reporting being more stressed, worried, and angry in recent years. So correspondent Megan Camrick lined up a few experts on anger studies, I guess you'd call it, to talk about it in the May 2021 episode of Peace Talks Radio. And among her guests was Aaron Balick, a psychotherapist who'd written about the psychodynamics of social networking. Megan asked Aaron about anger and rage in online interactions. It tends to be a contagious emotional component across social media, so everybody gets outraged at something together, and the expression of that outrage feels good, right, to get it out. It's not necessarily socially productive, but it can feel emotionally like a good thing, even when it's a bad thing. So it's kind of like eating chocolates when you're tired of eating chocolates, but you keep eating them anyway. And then when you put both of those things together, you have this sort of Venn diagram sweet spot where you can have your identity uh, sort of solidified in your in position about being outraged about something while kind of moving this anger contagion around that everybody kind of plugs into and, and I put them in air quotes, enjoys together. What is the impact of that on us and on society? It's really not particularly brilliant because what happens is we get regulated up. A good metaphor for that is something like road rage. You know, if you get into your car and you're already stressed out, you're more likely to scream and yell at somebody out the window. The more we're on our social media, particularly in those areas that make us angry and upset all the time, that kind of level of stress and anxiety tends to stay relatively high. It feels like there is more of this anger online, and it also feels like it's sort of an outburst where the underlying cause might be anxiety or loss of control. What is anxiety? You know, anxiety is about um, a lack of certainty, right? Um, not knowing where things are going. And what is certainty? Having something certain to be angry about, right? So. There is an argument that people are searching for a kind of righteous certainty by finding out, you know, what to be outraged about. And, you know, some of these things are very legitimate things to be outraged about, and and we should be angry about it. But then we always have to come back to the uncertainty and the anxiety. How do I deal with uncertainty? How do I deal with not knowing what's coming next? And Dr. Aaron Balick, I read an interview where you said social media aided and abetted by mobile technologies, often bypass our self-critical systems and give us a sense of omnipotence. Yeah, so I, I think the aided and abetted part of this is when our social media became part and parcel of our smartphones. So, you know, for those of us who remember the earlier days when in order to go online, you know, you had to go home to a laptop or have a really cumbersome experience, you know, now it is just there all the time. So what happens is we don't pause again to process and decide what to do with the material that's arising. So rather than sitting with that feeling for a moment and deciding what kind of productive action might be taken from it, we just attach that news story onto a tweet and then we start yelling. I have a number of friends 
who have decided to check out of social media entirely or some channels such as Facebook. But for many of us, that isn't an option. Professionally, we need to be there or we like to be in those spaces to keep in touch with far-flung family and friends. So help us find some best practices to guide us on engaging in healthy ways. Okay. The, the biggest problem that people have in this area is they tend to use their mobile devices um, and their social media in their default positions as given to us by the developers. And that basically means that you're getting the default notifications, your phone is buzzing or dinging, or notifications are rising while you're doing something else, if you're on your laptop, for example. And what you're, what you're doing there is you're having a, a passive relationship to your technology, which means you're allowing your technology to take control of you rather than the other way around. And what I always suggest people do in the most wholesome sense is to have an active relationship with technology. And that means you make decisions about what is a healthy way for you to engage. And that's gonna be different for all sorts of different people. But my main take homes are generally turn off your notifications altogether. I mean, I don't even have email on my phone because I find it really unhelpful to read an email on a phone because I can't respond to it properly. And then when you decide to look at email, if you've got that, or your Twitter or your Facebook or whatever you do professionally or privately, you're choosing to look. Yeah, and you go in there and you, now I'm looking and I'm gonna look for 10 minutes and then I'm gonna put it away again. So limit your use, choose when you're using it, decide when and why you're using it and pay attention to your feelings you know if you're scrolling through something and you're starting to feel worse and worse and worse listen to that and turn it off psychotherapist aaron balick on tamping down the anger that can kick in when social networking hear more about managing our anger to help bring more peace to our daily lives in the may 2021 episode of peace talks radio at our website peacetalksradio.com we have more highlights from our series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution coming up when we return to Seeking Peace on Earth, a Peace Talks Radio special after this short break. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, and we're presenting some compelling clips from our shows in our 19th season of programs in the Peace Talks radio series. I had the pleasure of crafting an episode about some classic musicians who became known for their advocacy of peace and social justice and hunger and poverty reduction. We spotlighted the stories of the late Harry Chapin, who did scores of concerts for charity and lobbied on Capitol Hill for years for hunger relief programs, while singing about the underserved often in his songs. Same with the late Marvin Gaye, whose album What's Going On in 1971 really opened up the doors for many African-American artists to openly express outrage over their repressed place in society. Both Gaye and Chapin sadly died in the early 1980s, about the time when singer-songwriter Jackson Brown really picked up the baton of activism and cut more and more songs on his albums that challenged listeners to activate their own social and political consciousness. I had a long talk with Jackson Brown about it all, and asked him what might have been other inspirations for his many benefit performances and writing about social and political issues. I'm wondering if the activism 
spark might have been lit a little bit by just seeing John Lennon and Yoko Ono in the late 60s or George Harrison's concert for Bangladesh. Certainly. Yeah. And Dylan. Well, Bob Dylan was majorly involved in the civil rights movement and wrote songs on the subject, you know, like uh, Only Upon Their Game or The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll. I mean, there he was very involved and wrote songs in the, on the, in the subjects that that were that accompanied the civil rights era i'll call it the civil rights era because that movement continued and the movement has had to continue but also buffy saint marie wrote songs universal soldier and also you know a lot of songs about um native american rights and she's a fantastic writer and and in the case of all this music the songs about love and relationships accompanied these the themes that we're all encountering on you know in social themes. It's very easy for me to see your writing, your recording, your touring, your activism, charitable work through a peacemaking mission lens. And I'm just wondering if that resonates with you as a way of seeing it, feeling it as you're doing it. I see that there are so many people that are much more committed in, in terms of their time, their constant time, than I am. If I'm able to put something in words into a song or figure out a way of talking about something that is that might <laughs> might succeed then I then I do but it's really up to me I don't have I don't think I have that much at stake I think I'm I've got the best job you can imagine that my job is to talk about life my job is to relate what I encounter and that my willingness to talk about social issues just to give it a handle even those people who maybe have been worried by my embracing political ideas and my songs in the in the beginning now see them as a necessary part of life and it's not it's just not the whole picture at all it's a part of it some essential part of it but for an activist they have responsibility to the people and to the issue and to the people that aligned with them on a cause that far outstrips mine i think I've, i can help i will you know i try yeah. and it goes for, it goes from the from uh human rights issues to the environment which of course the environment is a human rights issue now and you see that it is really also um, environmental justice you know there's a reason all these now we have phrases like frontline communities or fence line communities the people have to live adjacent to an oil well or something you know these you realize that the, that the people who profit from these industries don't live in the neighborhoods that are impacted but they certainly do live in a planet that will be ultimately impacted and their children will live in a planet that that is affected by their activities and so i think that the question about what do you think peace would look like is a good it's a good starting point it's not just an absence of war it's also the presence of justice you know if we're barricaded in our privilege we might miss the fact that that privilege is part of an an injustice and part of an unequal distribution of the wealth, part of an unequal application of justice. You know, where the country's in a really pivotal pivotal place. You can't pass laws or, or, or pass legislation that dictates people's awareness or willingness to be empathetic, you know. I mean, we have deep problems in this country. There's a divide here. I want to see you holding out your light. I want to see you like the Just a little soon to say 
a bit of A Little Soon to Say, again from Jackson Brown's Downhill from Everywhere 2021 release. Hear more from Jackson Brown in our hour-long version of this show, or in my complete nearly hour-long visit with him at our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com. Look for our June 2021 episode. Next, we hear an excerpt from one of several conversations correspondent Sarah Holtz had in our July 2021 Peace Talks Radio episode. She explored efforts to learn from other conflict resolution and social justice initiatives around the globe. Sarah talked with Rivera Sun, who works with Nonviolence News. She gathers solution-based examples from around the world and shines a light on them in her weekly newsletter. So nonviolence is one of those big words that can encompass a lot of different practices, tools, and types of actions. But if we start just with nonviolent action, that's a toolbox that includes things like protests, which many of us know, uh, boycotts and strikes, occupations, blockades, shutdowns, walkouts, call-in six, um, demonstrations, rallies, marches, banners, uh, posters, uh, music, singing, the list goes on and on. There's actually over 300 different methods of nonviolent action. And, you know, the hallmark of them is that they're not causing harm to people and most of the time not harm to uh, property either. So it's a it's a useful toolbox, but actually the word nonviolence goes on and it can also describe um, practices and policies that are rooted in approaches that don't cause harm to other people. And one of the ways I like to explain this is by actually talking about violence. Many of us know what physical violence is, uh, how that feels, what that looks like. But more and more of us are starting to pick up on the fact that there's other kinds of violences. There's systemic or structural violence, like the violence of slavery, or the violence of discriminatory policies, or the violence of um, the war machine, for example. So if you have systemic or structural violences, it stands to reason that you could also have systemic or structural nonviolence. And these are alternatives. So instead of having a punitive justice system where people get sent to prison for long prison sentences, we can have restorative justice. And this has been actually really helpful for intervening in things like the school to prison pipeline or disproportionate minority impacts in the justice system. And we're seeing many communities across uh, the U.S. and beyond start to implement restorative justice practices, uh, particularly in schools, but increasingly with juvenile justice programs and even with uh, certain types of adult offenses. So that's just one of the many examples of nonviolent uh, systems and structures that can be implemented that can replace those kinds of systemic and structural violences that have become all too familiar and all too norm in our society. Right. And how did you start writing and thinking about nonviolence and social change in the first place? I uh, grew up uh, with a father who was an anti-Vietnam War activist, uh, but I didn't actually become an activist till I was much older in life when the Occupy movement happened right across the street from where I lived. It was um, hard to ignore. Our local encampment in California where I was, uh, was loud and very visible, and I had to come out of my house and say, what's going on? 
so that got me started in activism. And several years later, I was writing my novel, The Dandelion Insurrection. And I realized I had gotten my characters in a mess that I didn't know how to get them out of. So I actually Googled how to bring down dictators nonviolently and got 4 million hits back and started reading and realized that there's an entire field, science, art, movement, everything you can think of around nonviolent action. Uh, And it's the kind of tools that any of us can pick up anywhere, anyone. Rivera Sun, founder of the weekly Nonviolence News newsletter. She's also an author and nonviolence trainer. You can hear the entire Sarah Holtz interview with Rivera Sun on the July 2021 episode page at peacetalksradio.com online, as well as hear other interviews from that episode. Part two of Suzanne Kreider's 2021 three-part series on healing a country's wounds spotlighted the technique of public dialogue. We're going to catch clips from two of her interviews for that show. First, Carolyn Abdullah, Senior Director of the Strengthening Democratic Capacity Team at EverydayDemocracy.org. They have a model called Dialogue to Change. Tell us just briefly about each of those three steps, Organize, Dialogue, Action. Everyday Democracy, of course, is a national nonprofit organization that's been around over 30 years supporting community level change in partnership with coalitions, other nonprofits, foundations, uh, towns, local governments. And to make that support something that is meaningful on the ground, we work in partnership and we actually bring a process of engagement, which we call community engagement which is rooted in those three pillars you mentioned earlier, the dialogue component, the organizing component, and the action component. Oftentimes people come together to engage in a conversation or what one may call a dialogue. And oftentimes it's with people who generally look like you, think like you, (laughs) dress like you, from a similar socioeconomic background. It takes a little work to get people in a room or in a space where you have that conversation with others who don't necessarily come from your background or look like you, think like you, and talk like you. Tell us a couple quick examples of the last two. And that would be that you've seen or you've heard of. So you've seen maybe the whole group change or you've seen institutional change. One example would be a local community in Florida where they were engaging around the issue of race. And one of the outcomes they talked about was how the local paper talked about their neighborhood or their community, oftentimes in negative ways. So I will say an example in which the local community decided to do as a group coming out of these conversations was to meet with the local paper, you know, the editor, and talk about the way they covered their neighborhood. And in those conversations, it led to creating sort of this um, ad hoc group that worked with the local paper to really begin to publish positive stories about what the community members were doing in their community to address everything from crime to cleanup to youth mentoring program and projects. 
from everydaydemocracy.org. That's Carolyn Abdullah. And now another guest from that August 2021 episode on Public Dialogue to help heal a country's wounds. We'll hear now from Ariane Sanchez, Community Engagement Manager with the City of Austin. Equality is also a peace issue, and I'm wondering how public engagement balances all this stuff. So let me give you some examples. You might have a person who has no internet access, or you have a person who's very domineering and talks a lot or writes a lot. You might have someone who's very silent. You might also have a person who just says, this is so stupid. I would never be involved in this. Now, how do you balance all these different approaches so that the whole dialogue is peace promoting? What the variety of opinions does is that it provides us a window of opportunity to understand what people are thinking behind what they're sharing. What I have learned is that no one shares their full self. They'll share what is convenient at that given moment according to the situation that we have. And so when someone says something like, I don't want to be involved in this process, then I have to go between the lines and try to think, well, but you are here and you want to be involved. I'm just not involving you in a way that we can connect. And so that is a challenge for me to figure out what is it that I could do to bring you into this dialogue. Perhaps it's location, perhaps it's the language barrier. It could be a number of things, but it is my job to listen and then understand how could I open this line of communication because that feedback is equally important. My job is to engage communities in dialogue, but it is everybody's job to do that. If there is a new person moving across the street or if there's someone that you saw sitting at a party and they're just waiting for someone to say hello, challenge yourself. Go and say hello. Be the very first person. Have the courage to say, what can I do for you? How can I introduce you around? Because I think that having that courage to pick up somebody's hand is what is going to bring peace to our world. Austin City Community Engagement Manager, Marion Sanchez. You can hear more from her and all the guests in Suzanne Kreider's August 2021 episode of Peace Talks Radio on Public Dialogues at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Our September offering in 2021 came from correspondent Megan Kamrick, who interviewed a couple of authors, one being Brian Gruber, who co-wrote the book Insurmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. The book dives deep into the successes and setbacks of 10 movements in the U.S. and three globally that might have something to teach us now. You focus on some that many of us would know, the civil rights movement, the Vietnam War protests. You also write about Alice Paul and the battle for suffrage in the U.S. She learned a great deal under the British suffragists, the Pankhursts, who were willing to be a bit more radical than their American counterparts. How did Alice Paul help bring the battle more into the streets in the U.S.? She was a Quaker back in the day. You had a social responsibility, if you were a Quaker, to find what was your calling or what they call your concern. And she actually had an epiphany while uh, speaking, I think it was to Christine Pankhurst, the, the younger Pankhurst, that this was what she needed to do. 
and because she went to school in London, she became active with the Pankhurst and really got an education there with a level of ferocity and, and determination that carried through where many of the, the suffragists in the United States felt she was too aggressive, but she felt if we go state by state by state like this, which was the Susan B. Anthony strategy, it'll take 200 years to do this and we want this now. They did pay a steep price sometimes for that. Oh, they were tortured. They would force feed them when they went on on hunger strikes. Not only that, they were constantly humiliated. They'd be protesting in front of the White House. They'd take President Woodrow Wilson's speeches about democracy and burn them in trash cans. It was very provocative. And of course, men who, after 5,000 years of patriarchy, thought that wasn't a very ladylike thing to do, would just approach them and spit on them and slap them and, and humiliate them. And Alice Paul actually wrote the text for the Equal Rights Amendment, which has yet to become part of the Constitution. Is it an example of success and failure? You know, the notion of success is discussed over and over in the book. There were two assumptions that we had that were constantly smacked down by thought leaders and by uh, social movement leaders. One, that there's a playbook. If you do these things, you'll be successful. And the converse is true, that actually you have to be willing to fail. Some of these struggles are multi-generational. Often there's violence perpetrated against the protesters. So the idea of success might take a while, and you might have, you know, as they talked to the fellow Sam Walker at the Voting Rights Museum at the, at the foot of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, you know, he talked about his work with young people because the work Uh, to be done in an area like racism in the United States can take generations. And Brian Gruber, you and your co-author of Surmountable Adam, Monier Edwards, also explored the Bonus Army. Here are these veterans from World War I. They come to Washington, ask for pretty basic things, a bonus to their really low pay while in the war before they die. And eventually you have Douglas MacArthur calling them traitors, George Patton leading the eviction of them from their camp, that they set up in Washington, D.C., burning down shacks, gassing them. That seems like a failure at first. Yeah, and it was only when Franklin Delano Roosevelt, a liberal, sent finally these remaining protesters down to the Florida Keys, and there was a massive hurricane, and Ernest Hemingway happened to be you know, at the bar in Key West when all this happened, and he saw when all these guys were, were flooded and killed, he saw their dead bodies floating in the water, and he wrote this story in a leftist publication that became a national outrage. And that finally, two things happened. Uh, one was really transformational. One, finally, they got their bonus after all those years. Again, struggle, struggle, struggle. The things you think you're going to do are successful are failing, but yet uh, suddenly, serendipitously, or through people seeing an injustice publicly, often when protesters are beaten or or killed, that happens. Another thing that happened, which really transformed American society, and that is that World War II had so many more soldiers that there was a feeling in the ruling class, in 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 the elite of the political class, if we screw these soldiers this time, there's gonna be a real revolution in the country. So what they decided to do is, hey, why don't we do something fair for the soldiers? And they created something called the GI Bill. And the money that was put in the hands of the soldiers during the Depression was a major turning point, particularly among ethnic minorities uh, and poor people, where suddenly you could buy a house and you could buy a car and it revitalized the economy. And in World War II, As you know, the GI Bill really was, to some degree, 
responsible for the explosive growth of the middle class and the health of the American economy. That's Brian Gruber, co-author of Insurmountable, How Citizens from Selma to Seoul Changed the World. The full episode and the full interview that Megan Kamrick did with Mr. Gruber is at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the September 2021 episode. Our October episode that season was the third part of Suzanne Kreider's three-part miniseries, Healing a Country's Wounds. This one spotlighted examples of community building at a grassroots level to improve conditions and cooperation in our neighborhoods and towns. Here's part of Suzanne's conversation with Julie Garreau, Executive Director of the Cheyenne River Youth Project since its inception in 1988. I am a member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. I'm from the Minikoju Lakota Band of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. Tell us a little bit about the physical plant like the buildings and the programs you offer in the in those buildings. Sure. So we have a campus now. We have a the main youth center which we rebuilt and opened in 1999. We have the teen center which we opened uh, in 2006. The main youth center has an activity room, a kitchen, volunteer living quarters, a little library, a little um, I think it's a computer lab and art studio combined. Um, the teen center, which is about 26,000 square feet, has a dance studio, library, classroom. It has a art studio, office spaces, volunteer living quarters, has a gymnasium, a fitness center, and then a big warehouse. We just broke ground to build a, um, it's called the Wainia Tuawapi Lakota Youth Arts and Culture Institute. It'll be about 9,000 square feet where we will continue to develop our arts and culture programming. We have a three and a half acre art park where you will find you know, paintings and graffiti and expressions of, of young people and people from throughout the communities and elsewhere. We have a two and a half acre organic garden you know, there's so much more, you know, and of course, you know, we, we need support, financial support from, you know, all over the country too. But, you know, I think the best thing you can do is find out about that community and find out like, what are they doing and why are they doing it? Kind of like this conversation we're having here and, you know, whoever listens to this conversation, maybe that will be uh, the inspiring moment for them to go to their own community and say, I'd like to help because there's a lot of people who need help right now. So if you have a roof over your head, you have an income, you are doing so well compared to so many people right now who are struggling. So if you don't support us, support, you know, there are just people who have needs and kids deserve to not be hungry and they need a good warm coat. They deserve to go to a school system that honors their indigeneity or, or if they're a person of color, you know, they deserve that. So, you know, maybe there's policy work or advocacy work that you have the capacity to do. Maybe that's you're a lawyer. Maybe you want to offer your terms for women who are in abusive situations and need to get away, but take what your skill set is and use it to help people. You've been given that by a creator. So how nice if you can help somebody else out. Julie Garreau of the Cheyenne River Youth Project. And Suzanne also talked via Zoom to Australia with Shani Graham, creator of Sustainable Resilient Communities in Western Australia. It makes me wonder about the boundaries that we set around community, like your inner, your out, like, okay, let's say you have a Siamese cat. 
so you're in the Siamese cat owner community. And if you don't own one, you're not in that community. So that's a boundary. So my question is like, um, well, should there be boundaries in communities? Well, I think there's two different types of communities. So there's the Siamese cat community that has a boundary around it and people go. It might be a community garden, might be a sports club, might be a school. And there are people that are attracted there because of a common interest. And often those groups talk about being inclusive, but they're usually inclusive of people who actually come. My passion, not to say there's anything wrong with communities of interest, but my passion is about communities of geographical location. So at the moment, my geographic community is a group called the West Beaky Bunch, And we've drawn some lines around the major roads where I live and we've said those 350 houses are the geographic community that we're going to try to develop. In a video, I heard your partner Tim say that one thing that happened on Halbert Street is that there started to be a breakdown of these concepts of people owning stuff like this is mine and that's yours. Why is that breakdown and that idea important? It's important for so many reasons. From a really practical perspective, we are going to have a problem shipping stuff around the world like we do now. So if five people can share a lawnmower, it means we are using less resource to make lawnmowers. If we can take back the idea of common spaces and even land that people are willing to give for common um, uses, it brings back a sense of community and a sense of civic responsibility and a sense of self-responsibility. Western Australian community activist Shani Graham with Suzanne Kreider on our October 2021 episode about community building. That's all we'll have time to share on this program today. There was one more episode in our 2021 season. You can look it up at peacetalksradio.com. On our November show, you'd get to hear me complain about the outsized influence commercial advertising has on our brains, our values, our own sense of peace of mind. I talked with three media literacy teachers who are trying to prep students and the next generation of media literacy educators to critically analyze advertising so they know how ad crafters are trying to influence them. With our shields up anyway, we might be able to protect our better selves from thinking that the key to inner peace is to spend, spend, spend. Look and listen in on the November 2021 episode at peacetalksradio.com. Also there at the site, a donate button that allows you to help us protect this little bit of media real estate that doesn't try to sell, sell, sell you on anything, but the idea of bringing more peace and less conflict into your daily life and thereby promoting a culture of peace in our world. We appreciate the support of our listeners, as well as our staff, of course. Nola Days Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performs our theme. And for our most excellent correspondents in season 19, Sarah Holtz, Megan Kamrick, and our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider. On their behalf, I'm Paul Ingalls, thanking you for listening and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.